0: Luke 23, Luke 22 and Luke 23. We're into the final moments, or the final hours, I should say, of the life of Christ. And we only got a couple chapters left here in our study in the book of Luke. And last week we didn't have enough time to finish it, so we're just going to do a small review. And i got a quick PowerPoint we're going to put up that kind of just shows where this is at. What there are, where there's these different trials of Jesus, and there were six different trials that we're working through here in our study through the book of Luke. And these six different trials are kind of spread out over the four different Gospels. For example, as we're doing our verse per, verse study through the book of Luke, Luke covers four of those trials, but there's other ones that aren't mentioned. So I just wanted to put this all together just to kind of remind us of what we talked about. If you want to go to the next slide, Alan. Real quick, these six trials are spread out over the span of about seven to eight hours. Most people believe that Jesus was arrested around one o'clock in the morning. And so these trials here, these six trials, once again, go over the span of about seven to eight hours here in the final day of Christ. Illegal on many levels. We mentioned this last week. You're not allowed to try a man at night. They were beating Jesus. They brought false witnesses. Illegal on many levels. Jews could not execute. Just a quick reminder. The Jews wanted Jesus put to death. The problem was the Jews were not in charge. The Romans were in charge. So the Jews had to figure out a way... To have Jesus put to death. So what happens is the Jews find Jesus guilty of blasphemy, of claiming to be God. Obviously he was, but they find him guilty of blasphemy. And then they send him to Rome, and they present the charge of treason to Rome. And Pilate is the ruler over the area at this time from Rome. So what happens is they make him guilty of blasphemy, and then they come to Rome. And now if they came to Rome and said, hey, this guy claims to be God, kill him. Rome would say, we don't care. So they had to come to Rome and kind of change the charge a little bit. Hey, this guy is trying to cause insurrection against the government. All of a sudden now, Rome would care. So eventually, Pilate puts him to death. If you going to go to the next slide, just some quick reminders here. First trial was before Annas. Annas was the high priest for 17 years. At this time, he was no longer was in power, but he still held all the power. So they took him to him first. Annas asked him some questions. Didn't like Jesus' answer, so they beat Jesus. They next go to Caiaphas, trial number two. Caiaphas is the high priest at this time. Same thing. Caiaphas asks him some questions. They don't like his answers. Once again, Jesus is beaten, which takes us to our third trial. They now go before the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is a group of Jewish men, 70, 70 70-plus men, And these guys would have been the ones that actually carried out the sentence to say, Yes, Jesus is guilty of blasphemy. Now that they have him guilty, they take him to Pilate the first time. And as they take him to Pilate the first time, this is where Pilate basically says, This man is innocent. Next slide, please. What happened, though, is they mentioned that he's from Galilee. So what Pilate does, he goes, Hey, I don't want to deal with this. So now I send him to Herod, who was also in charge of this area of Galilee, but he had no power. So Herod sends him back. And now he's before Pilate the sixth time, and Pilate then ends up putting Jesus to death. So there's actually six different trials that Jesus go through. You can go ahead and take that down, Alan. And this is where we're kind of right in the middle of this. So we're picking it up here in Luke 23 is where we kind of left off last week. And what you see here in Luke 23 is exactly what we just said. They bring him to Pilate, verse 1. They make the charge of treason, verse 2. So, Pilate comes out in verse 4 and says, Now Pilate said to the chief priests in the crowd, I find no fault in this man. But they were the more fierce, saying, He stirs up the people, teaching throughout all Judea, beginning from Galilee to this place. Last week we mentioned Pilate a little bit. Pilate was once again the guy that was in charge of this geographical area from Rome. Pilate had a hard job. He was a pretty harsh guy, so the Jews didn't like him. So, since the Jews didn't like him, the Jews caused problems for him, which made Rome upset. So Rome didn't think Pilate could do a good job. The Jews didn't think Pilate could do a good job. Pilate didn't do a good job. Pilate, at least three times, says that he feels Jesus is innocent. But if you look at this, verse 4, I find no fault in this man. Look at verse 5, but they were the more fierce. Pilate gave into to peer pressure. He gave into to the crowd. Pilate had no grounding. He had no moral stand in any way whatsoever. Three times he says this man's innocent, but he still puts him to death. History teaches us that Pilate, a few years after uh, Jesus was crucified, Pilate ended up committing suicide, is what history tells us. This man had no moral ground. He knows that Jesus is innocent, but yet, verse 5, the peer pressure, if you will, they, the crowds are more fierce, made Pilate give in. hate to say this, the same thing happens today. It's so difficult sometimes to find that support in the body of Christ. And you're out there at work, you're out there at school... And next thing you know, they're talking about world affairs, they're talking about the morals of the nation, they're just talking about life, and you're the only believer in that group. And the Lord then whispers to your heart, take a stand. And it's like, oh Lord, isn't it easier just for me to leave? Isn't it easier just for me to laugh along? Isn't it easier for me just to agree? Pilate had no foundation. He had no foundation on truth. He had no foundation on what was right and wrong in the eyes of God. And so therefore he gave in. And we see too many people today that claim to be Christians that give in on those areas where we need to be taking a stand and making a stand. Turn if you will with me to 2 Timothy chapter 3. 2 Timothy 3. The foundation that we have as Christians is what gets us through this foundation of who the Lord is. And where does this foundation come from? As you go to 2 Timothy, we get a little bit of a hint here of where this foundation comes from. 2 Timothy chapter 3. This is Paul's swan song, probably the last book of the Bible he wrote. He's wrote, writing to uh, Timothy, giving his final bits of advice through the Spirit. Look at 2 Timothy 3 verse 14. You must continue in the things which you have learned and been sure of, knowing from whom you have learned them, and that from, whole, that from childhood you have known the Holy scriptures, scriptures, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith which is in Christ Jesus. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. What is your foundation in life? Your foundation in life is going to be the Holy Scriptures. We have to start there. That is what gives you the answer of what is right and wrong in a world where there is no right and wrong. It is amazing that you can go out and have ten conversations with people, and each one of those persons can take one topic and have a different view on it and believing their view is right. Where do we find the moral standard of what is right around? That standard comes from God's Word. I love how the New Living Translation reads this, I'm just going to read this real quick. It says in verse 16, "...all Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives." It corrects us when we are wrong and teaches us to do what's right. That's what God's Word does. It tells me what is right. It tells me what is wrong. And when I do wrong, it teaches and corrects me. And that gives me the moral standard. You know, we're trying to raise five boys at home. So now when we try to raise these five boys at home and one of these five boys go up to one of the other boys and hit him in the head with a toy, I can tell him, don't. It's wrong. What's my moral standard of saying that's wrong? Well, it's just wrong. No, what we have at home and on our our fridge is this list of scriptures with house rules. And one of the rules says, if you ever come over to my house, it says, do not hit or throw your toys. And after that it says, Ephesians 4.32, be kind to one another. That's the moral standard. Why do you not hit your brother? Why do you not throw toys at your brother? Because Ephesians 4.32 tells us to be kind to one another. That's the moral standard of our lives. And what happens is when you do not have a moral standard in your life, you are open to anything. Pilate, I find no fault in this man, I'll still beat him. I find this man innocent, I'll still whip him. I find this man innocent, I'll still kill him. Where's the moral stand? As Christians, we need to realize that the morality of what we believe comes from the Scriptures and the Scriptures alone. That is what teaches us right and wrong in a world where there is no right and wrong. When you don't have that idea of God's Word being the foundation you're going to be taken all over the place. I was talking to a guy one time, claimed to be an atheist. So we're talking about him being an atheist, and he wasn't just an atheist. He was the atheist that had to go out and de-evangelize people. He wasn't just content not believing in God. He was in the idea of I want to people to realize that there is no God. So very forceful in that. But he wasn't just an atheist. He was also racist. And he believed the white race was the supreme race. So here I am sitting talking to this guy that's an atheist, he's also racist, and we could go down all the other different beliefs that he had. But then, in the middle of this conversation, and what I like to do is when I run into somebody who does not believe in God, I always try to ask okay, where's your morals come from? Just give me a little bit of background. So we're talking a little bit about his morals, and this atheist racist is pro-life. I said, you're pro-life? He goes, yeah. I said, okay, now I'm thinking about this. And I go to him, I said, so you're pro-life? He goes, yeah. I said, but you're racist. He goes, yeah. What do you think about black people? I think they should all be gone. What do you think about a little black baby? I think that baby should be saved. I said, there's no no standard here. There's no moral standard. You can't tell me that you're pro-life, but yet you're racist later on. It doesn't make any sense that they should all be killed, but yet I believe that in the sanctity of life... There's no moral standard. So when I told him, I said, you have no moral standard. Got angry, got upset, and left. Because when there is no moral standard, what are you basing your life on? See, for me as a Christian, and the world thinks this is foolish, and I'm telling you right now, Corinthians says that the world thinks that we're foolish. We base our standards on what the Bible says. So why do I think that I should be pro-life? Because God honors life. The Bible teaches me the sanctity of life. Why do I believe that my kid should not hit another kid? Because I believe I should be kind to one another. These are the standards that we have. And when you look at Pilate, who just kept saying he's innocent, but I'm going to keep beating him, you realize what happens when you don't have that moral standard of what is right or what is wrong. And so when I'm faced with situations in life, I can come back to the scriptures. And the scriptures tell me what is right and wrong. So when somebody comes up to me with all these questions of, well, is this right? Is this wrong? You know, I'm dating this guy, but he's not saved. What should I do? Well, the Bible says you should stay away from non-believers and not date them. Well, I'm dating this guy, and he wants me to move in with him. Well, the Bible says you should honor yourself until marriage and keep yourself pure. Well, the Bible says that I have a standard. I have a moral purity here that the Bible teaches me of what is right and wrong. And that standard then gives me the foundation of my life. See, Pilate... He didn't have that. He didn't have that moral standard. And as Christians, we're called to have this. Real quick, you don't need to turn there. Colossians 2, verse 7, Colossians 2, verse 7, says that we're supposed to be rooted and built up in Jesus and established in the faith as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Look at these words again. Rooted and built up in Jesus and established in the faith. God's Word roots me in Him, builds me up in Him, and establishes me in Him. When you have the moral foundation of the Scripture, that you believe the Scripture is right, that is your foundation that carries you throughout life. And that's what we need. We need that today in a world where there is not a right and wrong. And we can come back and say, no, this is right because God's Word teaches truth. Pilate did not have that. You see Pilate being pulled aside by the crowds. Verse 5, they were more fierce he gave in. Now, just be honest with yourself. When you're at home, when you're at school, when you're at work, wherever it is, and you're told to take a stand, but the crowds are fierce, what are you going to do? It's easy to be a pilot. Just give in. But can we take a stand on what's right? And as we take a stand on what's right, God honors that. And that gives us the spiritual backbone we need to stand in a fallen world. So, Pilate, he, verse 5 Here's that Jesus is from Galilee. Verse 6, when Pilate heard of Galilee, he asked if the man were a Galilean. And as soon as he knew that he belonged to Herod's jurisdiction, he sent him to Herod, who was also in Jerusalem at the time. Pilate says, thankfully, I don't have to deal with this. You're from Galilee? Fine. Go to Galilee. Let Galilee take care of this. Haven't you ever happened that? I said this happened recently to me. I called a big company, had a problem with a certain situation, and I finally got through to somebody, you know? And you get through to them, and and they ask, what's your question about My question's about this. And you can almost hear the joy in their voice. Oh, I'm sorry, I don't deal with that, but I'll transfer you to the person that does. This is exactly what's happening here with Pilate. There's joy. I don't have to deal with this situation. Go to Herod. Now, verse 8. Now, when Herod saw Jesus, he was exceedingly glad, for he had desired for a long time to see him, because he had heard many things about him, and he hoped to see some miracle done by him. Then he questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. Herod wanted circus act, Jesus. Walk on water, change water into wine, Can you heal somebody? Can you raise the dead? He wanted Circus Act Jesus. You know, the same thing still happens today. People want Circus Act Jesus. Make church the most fun, exciting thing you can be. And every week, top it to keep the people coming back for more. Every now and then, we'll have somebody from the community kind of pop out. And they'll say, hey, we've heard a lot about the church. And kind of wanted to pop out and see what it's like. And then as they come out, I always feel like this moment of, oh man, they're gonna be disappointed. Because there isn't that much exciting. Because you know what? Guess what we're gonna to do today? We're gonna to teach through Luke twenty three. Once we get done with Luke Twenty three, guess what we're going next? Luke twenty four. And once we get done with Luke twenty four, guess what we're gonna do next? We're gonna start a new book of the Bible. And that's what it's gonna be. It's not a circus act. Because my job is not to be a circus act. My job is to do exactly what Colossians chapter 2, verse 7 says, to rich you, establish you, and build you up in the doctrine of Jesus Christ. And as I do that, then you go out and be lights and witnesses in what you do and say. This is a time to come together as a body, to have a time of worship, to have a time of fellowship, to be taught the word, to be encouraged, to give you an opportunity to serve, basically pump you up, stick our hands in the huddle, say, go team, go, let's go out there and tell people about Christ. That's what we're here to do. We are here to witness to the dying world. And it's our job on Sunday to establish, to build up, and to encourage that, to give you the weapons and tools that are needed through the Scriptures to go out and be a light and a witness. Now, am I against miracles and amazing things that the Lord does in verses 8 and 9? No! I love miracles. I love when the Lord moves mightily. I love when the Spirit moves. And it's an amazing thing when God moves. But what happens is, Herod is not hoping to see the true Messiah. He wants to be entertained. Jesus' great response in verse 9, He questioned him with many words, but he answered him nothing. Now we mentioned this last week. Sometimes at the trials of Jesus, Jesus did not answer a question. Doesn't that seem strange? If given an opportunity to make a stand for the Lord, we should say something. Sometimes we should. Sometimes there's nothing to say. We say out here many times, wisdom is knowing what to say, when to say it, how to say it, and even if to say it at all. Sometimes the best I can do for the gospel is to keep my mouth shut Jesus at this time knew there was nothing he could say that was going to impact Herod's heart for the Lord he said nothing, verse 10 and the chief priests and scribes stood and vehemently accused him, then Herod with his men of war treated him with contempt and mocked him, arrayed him in a gorgeous robe and sent him back to Pilate that very day Pilate and Herod became friends with each other for previously they had been in enmity with each other Isn't that amazing what Jesus does? He takes enemies and makes them friends. Look at the world politics sometimes, and you see some of these nations that come together. They come together in the hatred of the Jews. They come together in the hatred of uh, Christian morals. It's amazing sometimes what happens. We always talk about Jesus and, and fellowship we had a situation recently. Uh, Renee and I were in a wedding, and there were some people in the wedding we hadn't seen for 15, 20 years, but we knew them a long time ago at a Bible study, and we get back together. We're brothers in the Lord, and immediately there's this fellowship. What's God doing in your life? What's God? I mean, it's neat. But at the same time, you almost see fellowship amongst people that hate Christ because there's a mutual hatred of Jesus. See, as soon as I meet somebody, if they're a believer, I already have something in common with them. We can talk about the Lord. If I meet somebody who's not a believer, and the subject of Jesus comes up, it can get awkward very quick. I've joked with you before, the worst thing I can tell somebody is that I'm a pastor. That is a conversation killer right from the beginning. If you don't know me and we come up and we meet each other, and if I tell you I'm a pastor and you don't want to hear about the Lord, it gets awkward, it gets cold, and you basically get away as quick as you can. I could have a better conversation with you telling you I'm a drug smuggler, because you'd be, oh, that's fascinating. You know... (laughs) Pastor, This idea of Jesus, it's divisive. Pilate and Herod became friends because of Jesus. This is fascinating. So basically, Herod says, there's nothing I can do with this guy. Herod really didn't have any power. So guess what happens? Back to Pilate. Again, Pilate already had one opportunity, verse 4, to take a stand. Pilate failed. The crowds were too fierce. Verse 13, then Pilate, when he had called together the chief priests, the rulers, and the people, said to them, You have brought me this man, excuse me, brought this man to me as one who misleads the people, and indeed, having examined him in your presence, I have found no fault in this man concerning those things of which you accuse him. No, neither did Herod, for I sent you back to him, and indeed, nothing deserving of death has been done by him. I will therefore chastise him and release him, for it was necessary for him to release one to the feast. So Pilate's great idea is this. Point number two, verses 14 14 and 15. I've examined him. I find nothing wrong with him. Herod examined him and found nothing wrong. But you know what? To appease you, I will chastise him. Now this word chastise, you have to understand, this is not just simply go out and rough him up. This is take him to the brink of death. This is beat him and rip his back off so bad that there's not a man left. Don't we do that sometimes as Christians? We appease instead of taking a stand for the truth. Pilate, listen, he's innocent. Herod thinks he's innocent. But you know what? I I don't want to make you guys too upset, so I'll just go ahead and literally beat him, chastise him, destroy him physically. Compromise is an awful, awful word. It's an awful word. Verse 17, For it was necessary for him to release one of them to the feast. Some of your translations have that. Basically, it's mentioned in other Gospels as well, too. What would happen during this time is there's this kind of this thing that Rome did. Rome, to make the Jews happy during the Passover, would let somebody go. Basically a token way of saying, we're good guys. It's the Passover. This is a big deal to you Jews. We'll let this person go. Verse 18, And they cried all at once, saying, Away with this man, and release to us Barabbas, who had been thrown into prison for a certain rebellion made in the city and for murder. The world would rather have a murderer and rebellion than Jesus. Think about that. The world chose 2,000 years ago to have the murderer and the person leading rebellion rather than have the Savior. The same thing still happens today. We as a society elevate the Barabbas of this world rather than elevating Christ. And then we wonder why the world is the way it is. We have this tendency to say, away with Jesus, give us Barabbas. We still do the same thing today. Verse 20, Pilate, therefore, wishing to release Jesus, again called out to them, saying, But they shouted, saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Then he said to them the third time, Why? What evil has he done? I have found no reason for death in him. I will therefore chastise him and let him go. Pilate cannot take a stand, verse 23, And they were insistent, demanding with loud voices that he crucify And the voices of these men or the chief priests prevailed. Verse 23 is one of the saddest verses in the Bible. Because I've heard that excuse in counseling before. I didn't want to do it, but they really pushed me. I've heard that excuse out of my own mouth. I really didn't want to, but... Can you imagine Pilate? Listen, I tried to let him go three times. I tried to let him go, but verse 23, they were insistent. They had really loud voices. Loud voices demanding. Come on. I'm telling you right now, and I don't mean this to attack you. If you claim Jesus Christ as your Savior... You are claiming to be born again. You are claiming to be different than this world. You are claiming that your standards and your morals line up with the scripture and that it's different than what the world says is right or wrong. You are in the minority in this world. When you go into work, be at school, be it at home, you are going to be around fierce crowds that insist and demand that you go down to their level rather than you proclaim Jesus Christ to them. Now, we can either be a pilot and fight, 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 but give in, or we could take a stand and mean it. We learn from Pilate of the weakness, the weakness of this man. Verse 24, so Pilate gave sentence that it should be as they requested, and he released to them the one they had requested, whom for rebellion and murder had been thrown into prison, but he delivered Jesus to their will. So now Jesus goes to the cross. But I think it's important at this time to read just a little bit more into this. If you would, please, go to John 18 with me. John 18. We picked on Pilate a lot, not having the spine to take a stand, not having the moral background to take a stand. But the same thing still happens today. But we need to share this in John 18, because John 18 gives us just a little bit more background here. And it leads up to this question that Pilate asks that we need to talk about. Verse 28, we mentioned last week that the Jews are bringing Jesus to the praetorium. This is where Pilate would have had his headquarters. And it says that they won't go in because they'd be considered unclean. See, during the Passover, if the Jews would have been around a Gentile, they'd have been ceremonially unclean. These guys are hypocrites. We want Jesus killed for no reason, but we don't want to be around a Gentile. Pilate goes out, verse 29, what accusation do you have? Verse 30, well, he's obviously evil. If he's evil, we wouldn't have brought him to you. Verse 31, Pilate says, you judge him. I don't want to deal with this. The Jews' response is that we're not allowed to. So then, verse 33, Pilate starts his questioning of Jesus. Are you the king of the Jews? Verse 34, Jesus answered, are you speaking for yourself about this, or did others tell you this concerning me? I think verse 34 is a great question that Jesus asks. What Jesus is basically asking Pilate, Pilate, is do you want to know? I mean, are you really asking me, Pilate, that you want to know whether I'm the king of the Jews? Are you just asking? Because you have to ask. I run into this a lot. I run into this where somebody will come up to me and and say something to the effect of, I fill in the blank, my cousin really wants to know about the Lord. Will you call him? So I'll call up Cousin Joe. Hey, this is Pastor James. Your cousin comes out to church. here. you had some questions about God. Oh, yeah, maybe I do. Maybe some other time we can talk about it or something like that. They don't want to talk about it. Jesus is asking Pilate, are you sincere? Do you sincerely want to know if I'm the king of the Jews. How often do we just throw out things like that? Are you the king of the Jews? Do we just randomly throw out about the Lord? We joke out here a lot that if everybody that we run into throughout the week would show up to church that tell me that's coming to church, we'd have to have three services in a sanctuary twice the size. Because every time I run into somebody, Pastor, I'll see you Sunday. And I always want to say, no, you won't. But, you know... <laughs> Because I know what they're saying. I know what's going on. Verse, you know, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate, verse 34. Do you mean this, Pilate? Are you really asking me? Are you really sincere about this? Pilate's response shows he wasn't. Verse 35. Pilate answered, Am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you to me. What have you done? Pilate's like, Well, Am I a Jew? Does this even matter to me? Verse 36, Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would fight so that I should not be delivered to the Jews. But now my kingdom is not from here. This is the definition of meekness. We talked about this last week. Meekness in today's society, if we'd come up to somebody and say you are meek, it sounds like we're insulting you. And I know some of you heard this last week. Meekness from a biblical standpoint means that I have the power and strength to respond, but I choose not to. Meekness is strength. Jesus is saying in verse 37 says verse 36 if i wanted to my kingdom could come down and fight for this he makes it very clear that that could be what happened jesus holds back he sees the greater good and sometimes you've had discussions you've had arguments with people where you could go down to their level and what good would come out of that meekness is as i hold back realizing there's a greater good that can come out of this Meekness is not weakness, but it's realizing I do not go down to that level in the flesh and go into that type of argument. Jesus didn't. Pilate therefore said to him, verse 37, Are you a king then? Jesus answered, You say rightly that I am a king. For this cause I was born and for this cause I have come into the world that I should bear witness to the truth. Everyone who have the truth hears my voice. Verse 38, Pilate said to him, What is truth? That question is still being asked today. What is truth? Note, Jesus did not answer that question. Now, why didn't he answer? Well, verse 38, and when he had said this, he went out. He went out again to the Jews and said, I find no fault on him at all. No, I I don't think Pilate really wanted the answer to that question. What is truth? I've talked to people before about the Lord, and they'll say something like this. Can we really believe in the idea that there's a God? I usually say, do you really want me to answer that? Because they dislike these big questions. Have you ever run into somebody... Boy, I love talking about the Lord with you. But will we ever really know? Yeah, you can know. What is truth? Pilate wants to know. 2,000 years later, the world is still asking, what is truth? Let's answer that question. Because even though this is a very deep question, it's actually one of the easiest questions to answer. We're not even going to turn to the verses, because the verses are so simple. If you're taking notes, please write these three verses down. You want to know What is truth? John 14, verse 6. John 14, 6. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and life. No one comes to the Father but by me. So what's the first truth that we have in the world? That Jesus is the only way to experience salvation. That's the first truth. In a world in today where we live in, where there's all these different religions and cults and what have you, pointing you towards their idea of heaven, Jesus is the truth, the only way to get to heaven. That's the first truth. What about the next one? John 14, verse 17. John 14, verse 17. The Holy Spirit is truth. In a world today where people have no idea what they're called to do and they're wandering on in a world aimlessly, pointlessly, the Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit, will guide you to a relationship with Jesus and then what you are born and saved will empower you and fill you and guide you into a relationship with Christ where you're a light and a witness for Him. The Spirit of truth gives you a purpose. Lastly, John 17, 17. John 17, 17. The Word of God is truth. In a world where we don't know right from wrong, the Word of God tells us what is right and wrong. Jesus is truth, the Spirit is truth, and God's Word is truth. Everything falls into that category. Everything. Anything that I experience in life, I need to say, does it line up with the nature of Jesus? Does it line up with the Holy Spirit's calling? And does it line up with God's Word? If it does not, it's not truth. Two quick examples of that, and I've used these examples before. A few years ago, when the Da Vinci Code was quite popular, people would come up to me and say, what do you think about this idea of Jesus being married to Mary? Is that true? No, that's not true. How can we know that? Let's go through our thing here. What's the first one? Jesus said that he's truth. The Bible says that Jesus said that he will be married, and he'll be married to us, the body of Christ. God's Word tells me in the book of Revelation that there's a wedding up in heaven of us in Christ showing a closeness and intimacy. So is Jesus married? Yeah, to you and I, and that's what's going to happen up in heaven. So is He married to Mary? No, the Bible tells me that. I can find out the truth of that. A few years ago, when there were billboards up all over the place telling me the world was going to end in May. Is that true? No, it's not true. Because the Word of God is truth, and the Word of God tells me that no man knows the day or hour. Because that's the truth. So when you come to me, And you have a question about a moral issue in life, let's see what Jesus said about it. Let's see what the Spirit leads about it. Let's see what God's Word says about it, because that is truth. And when we have this foundation of truth, when falseness pops up, we can see it, we can handle it, because we know the truth of Jesus, the truth of the Spirit, and the truth of God's Word. I encourage you in your own walk with Christ, rely on, build your foundation on, the truth of Jesus, the truth of the Spirit, and the truth of God's Word. Junk is out there all over the place. I mentioned to you that uh, Renee and I were in a wedding recently. We're sitting there at the uh, table. And there was just three of us, him and I and one other groomsmen. This guy came up to us and started talking to us. That's a really strange conversation. It was one of those where he just comes up and starts talking to us, and he doesn't leave. So we're sitting there, and he makes a couple jokes, comments. We don't know him, but I keep thinking, this guy looks really familiar. So he starts talking to us, hangs around Finally, there's kind of a law and everything. He looks at us and he goes, Guys, today's your lucky day. I will grant each one of you a wish. I kid you not, this is what he said. As soon as he said that, I know who this guy is. This guy used to come out here to church, not come to attend, but come out literally to church to ask to teach out here. And he had all these crazy ideas. He came out to me and he promised me, whatever you want, God will give it to you this year. He told me that the Lord revealed to him what these seven seals were in the Bible, in the book of Revelation, if I remember correctly, that are hidden truths, but he now knows them. And then what happened is when I told him we weren't interested, he started going around to other people at church asking them to come out to talk to me. I eventually told this guy he was a false prophet and I asked him not to come out again. Now he must not have recognized me, but he came up to us and he said, you guys each can have a wish. So he asked me first, what's your wish? I said, my wish is that I hope I get my chocolate cake quick. That's what I told him. (laughs) He looked at me and says, You wasted your wish. That's what he told me. I got my chocolate cake. I am just going to tell you that. I did. So I didn't waste my wish. No one else got theirs. I got my chocolate cake. Goes to Renee. What's your wish? Renee, Renee didn't want to answer. Goes to the third guy. What's your wish? Kind of hounds the third guy a little bit. Hounds. And finally the third guy says something about the job situation. He looks at the third guy and he goes, You're the only one that had faith. Your wish will come true. All this other type of stuff. So the guy leaves. So Renee and I talked to the, the third groomsman, they were saying, Listen, and I came out and said, This guy's a false prophet. I said, That's exactly what This guy's a false prophet, disguising himself under the guise of God and speaking forth for God. And Renee started telling the guy that there's, you know, you don't get wishes. That the Lord gives you the desires of your heart. And as you seek Him and and know what the Lord wants in your life, then God will bless that. And it doesn't mean that you have this genie in a bottle, but what happens is the deeper you go in the Lord, the more your desires become the desires of God. And as your desires become the desires of God, then God says, I want to give you the desires of your heart because your desires are my desires. False prophets all over the place. I'm telling you right now, you're going to run into somebody this week And the subject of truth, now maybe it won't come up in that deep, what is truth, what's right and wrong. You know what's right and wrong. Because Jesus said he is truth, the Spirit says that the Spirit leads in truth, and God's word is truth. You know what is right and wrong. And I tell you right now, you have an opportunity every single time, be it at work, be it at home, be it at school, to have a chance to impact something bigger than you can ever imagine. Because when you take a stand for truth in that one little conversation, maybe at the supper table, at the lunch table, at the break room, or maybe just on the line, you can impact one person for Christ. And as you impact one person for Christ, that person then impacts another person for Christ. And next thing you know, you have this domino effect that's happening where us, through just daily living, are impacting people in truth for Jesus. And as they are impacted, next thing you know, it's a fire that spreads out. And that's what's supposed to happen. Let's get out there in our individual lives and just witness. Live the life. And when given the chance to take a moral stand on issues, let's take a moral stand. And then we can proclaim the truth of Jesus. I'll tell you right now, it is wonderful on a Sunday morning to come in and there'll be hundreds of people that come in through these two services to get a chance to teach. I get more fruit, out will probably talking to somebody one-on-one. Because there's an opportunity to really say, let me tell you about Christ. Let me tell you about Christ. Our job on Sunday morning is to root you, establish you, and build you up in the faith, to send you out to then go impact your community, your workplace, your school, wherever you're at, for Christ. <clears throat> take a stand for truth. And as you take a stand for truth, you see what the Lord can do. Last thing we're going to do, can you go to Matthew 7, then we're done. Matthew 7. Not only impacting others with the foundation of truth, but making that our foundation as well. For me to teach you about the foundation of Christ, I need to have the foundation of Christ in my own life. And Matthew 7 shows us this. Matthew 7, verse 24. Matthew seven verse twenty four. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will like liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. Everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell. And great was its fall. Now this is what I call a Sunday school story. We know this story. The rock represents Jesus. We build our house on the rock. The house stands. The sand represents the world. The world falls apart. There's no foundation. You build your house on the sand, falls down. We know it. We understand it. And we see it in our lives. And we see it in other people's lives. When you build your life on Christ, it stands. When you build your life on the sand, it falls. But the problem is, listen to this. Look at verse 24. Whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them. See, right there's the first point. It's hearing and doing. Many of you came here this morning and you have heard the message. Great. But are you going to do something with it? I can spend all day hearing messages from pastors. I could spend all day reading devotionals in God's Word. Am I going to do something with it? Not be just a hearer of the Word, but a doer. So the first thing is we need to hear and then do. Because look at verse 26. Everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them See, we think we've done our part. I came to church. I listened. I even underlined a verse. I took a note. Great, but did you do anything with it? I hear people tell me all the time, I listened to the Christian messages all day. That's great. Let's do something about it. I read three chapters of the Bible a day. That's great. But let's do something about it. Let's not just hear. Let's do. So that's point one. Look at the next one. We know what happens. Verse 27, The rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on his house, and it fell. But look at verse 25. The rain descended, the floods came, the winds blew and beat on the house, and it did not fall. See, this is the problem. I think what happens sometimes with this story is we look at the foolish man, house built on the sand, house falls down because the storms of life hit him. Do you realize in verse 25 the same storms of life that hit the foolish man also hit the believer? See, the thing is, just because you know Jesus doesn't mean you are freed from the storms of life. Believers will get cancer. Believers will lose their job. Believers will struggle emotionally, spiritually, and physically. The same storms that hit a non-believer will also hit the believer. The only difference is the believer has their house on Jesus Christ. That's the importance of the foundation. I've seen too many Christians that say something to this effect... I don't know why God is doing this to me. I'm serving Him. I'm loving Him. No, 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 no. You're misunderstanding. You're going to get hit by storms. What Christianity is not, Christianity is not promising you freedom from storms. Christianity is promising you a foundation for your house to be built on during that storm. You're going to get hit by storms this week. Some of you came in today and you're already hit by a storm emotionally, spiritually, or physically. Some of you are going to have to run into a storm this week. Your foundation is on Christ, and as your foundation is on Christ, He is the one that gets you through that storm. As I was preparing this message, I thought of that great hymn. On Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Boy, how true is that? So I guess what it comes down to is this. The foundation of our life is God's Word. The Spirit of truth leads me in truth. Jesus Christ is truth. God's Word is truth. I build my life on the foundation of that. I also then tell other people to build their life on the foundation of that. I don't want to be the pilot. I don't want to be a pilot that just keeps saying, this guy's innocent, but yet the crowds are fierce. The crowds are loud. The crowds are intimidating. Yeah, they are. But I have a stand on Christ, and He has my foundation and my rock that gets me through everything. Marv, if you want to come forward here for the final song. We'll let Marv and Kathy close us out the song. Just a quick reminder, we ask you to prayerfully consider getting involved with some of these ministries. Back there on the back, some of the representatives...